Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slashfilm Daily for September 8th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be diving into the news, talking about Justice League reshoots, talking about new directors for X-Force and Suicide Squad 2. Terminator 2 3D is shutting down at Universal Florida, and we're going to be talking about a couple movies that are coming to television, uh, and also Purge 4 details revealed. In our feature presentation, Brad Oman will be joining us to talk about his visit to the set of Thor Ragnarok in Australia. This is Peter Serretta, and with me on today's show is the managing editor of SlashFilm.com, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And SlashFilm writer... Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? Before we get into the news, I just want to say that yester- on yesterday's show, we reported a bit about Justice League reshoots. Since the reporting of that, uh, the story has been coming into question because we don't quite know that that them shooting this Wonder Woman footage is actually for Justice League. Could for be for Aquaman. The actress who posted the photo kind of denied that it was for Justice League, but, I mean, she would. She signed an NDA. Um, but it could also be for Aquaman, which is also, uh, I think, wrapped photography. So we we actually don't know what it's for, but it's it's for something. Uh, you can read the, the update on SlashFilm.com. But let's get into the news. Some breaking news has just hit. Drew Goddard is going to write and direct the X-Force movie for 20th Century Fox. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so this uh, news just broke as we're recording this. Um, This is really interesting because Drew Goddard is the guy who uh, co-wrote and directed Cabin in the Woods, which is a movie that I really, really love. Uh, I would highly recommend checking that out if you haven't seen it yet. But uh, Fox has been looking to find a director for an X-Force movie for a little while now. Um, This has been sort of a priority for the studio for a bit. And uh, and yeah, now Drew Goddard is going to be writing and directing the movie uh, at one point. What is is X-Force? Because a lot of people out there might not know what X-Force is. Yeah, X Force is like the uh, the team up. It's like basically the X Men equivalent of Suicide Squad. It's like a Black Ops um, dark mirror version of the X Men, as Jacob described it to me earlier. Basically, they do like uh, 
like, yeah, hardcore missions that the regular X-Men wouldn't really do. Um, the team has sort of a rotating roster over the years, but the movie is expected to include the return of Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, Josh Brolin as Cable, and Zazie Beetz as Domino, at least. Maybe more people than that. Probably more people than that. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the concept. It's essentially their sort of team-up movie of a lot of these characters that will be appearing in Deadpool 2, um, and it could serve as potentially, you know, more... Um, a crossover maybe between like new mutants and some of the other X-Men related projects that Fox has coming down the pike. Now, Drew is the director of Cabin in the Woods, which you mentioned Cloverfield. Uh, he was the writer of the Martian world war Z uh, lost daredevil alias Buffy. Uh, you know, he he's done rewrites for a lot of movies that he has not credited for. He's a, a famous script doctor. Um, he was supposed to, he was supposed to write the Sinister Six for Sony mm-hmm. before uh, Spider Man got rebooted again. Uh, I'm a fan of Drew, but I'm not sure if I, I want to see him get stuck in this X Men universe. Jacob, what what are your feelings on Drew writing and directing X Force? Well, I've been a fan of him since the Buffy and Angel days. So I'm happy to see him working. I'm happy to see him do a superhero movie because he obviously has an itch. I mean, he had. He started on Daredevil for Netflix before he departed that relatively early. He was doing Sinister Six. So even though part of me, my initial response is, do I really want to see Drew Goddard get wallowed down in X-Men movies? It's clear that he wants to do that. And if he's interested in that, then who am I to say, hey, you, go make what I want when he clearly wants to be a part of this. For sure. Um, let's move on to the next bit of news, and that is that a beloved attraction at Universal Studios Florida is set to close. Terminator 2 3D, which opened, I think, in the late 90s? 1996. 1996, a mid-90s. Uh, you wrote the story for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? We know that Terminator 2 3D, or T2 3D Battle Across Time, is... It's actually technically known on the sign outside the ride. It is closing it, 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 on... And it actually makes it a little bit more confusing that Terminator 2 was just released in 3D. Yes, it's really confusing now, for sure. But this is the ride, the, the, the attraction. It's been Universal Studios Florida since 1996. And it is closing its doors forever on October 8th, 2017, a, a, a month from tomorrow, to make room for new unspecified attraction. And this ride is unique for a lot in a lot of what reasons. It was actually directed by James Cameron, who actually got Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, uh, Edward Furlong, and Robert Patrick all to come back and reprise their roles. It finds James Cameron doing 3D for the first time, which, as we all know, he's now made his life's work, more or less. (laughs) And it's this sort of weird semi-sequel, for those of you who haven't done the the attraction, where you're in the rebuilt Cyberdyne headquarters, and things go wrong, as you'd expect, and there's this 3D movie with... Stunt actors live on stage, moving between the screen and reality. And so at the time, it was a really cool thing. And it has been starting to show its age recently. And as I write in this article, Universal is not nostalgic or sentimental. Uh, unlike Disney, who's all about their legacy, Universal is all about what's new, what's hot, how can we advance and change as fast as possible. So I understand why they're changing this. It bums me out because I love this ride. But at the same time, the last three Terminator movies have shown that audiences aren't really interested in these characters anymore. And Universal clearly has something that they want to put in this space because they have a new attraction uh, being planned for 2019. 
Yeah, and we, we, we don't know what that is. Uh, I've always loved this attraction. They closed it a few years ago in, in Hollywood. Uh, the thing I loved about it is the interplay with the live-action stunts and animatronics with the 3D movie. Like, at one point, I think Arnold, who's on screen, drives his motorcycle into a, a time tunnel or a time portal and comes through the screen. Uh, which was very cool. I, I, I think you embedded the video on the SlashFilm.com article. So if, if you haven't seen this attraction uh, and don't plan on going there in the next month, I would say watch the uh, the video. Um, one thing I do want to mention yeah. is, as well is that the one thing they do say in their press release is that the new uh, attraction will be an all-new live-action experience based on a high-energy universal franchise. And I have no idea what that is uh, for a live action show in this space that that already being made into it's it's also a universal property clearly. Fast and Furious is already getting a ride across the park. Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem, which replaced Terminator in uh, in Hollywood, uh, has already exists in a different location in this park. So I'm actually putting my money on it being a Secret Life of Pets show of some kind, since that's the rumor mill has been churning about Universal wanting a ride based in that movie. Yeah, no, I've I've heard about a dark ride for that. I'm assuming that Hollywood is getting this DreamWorks theater that they're building right now, which is kind of like this, uh, almost like a 3D live stage show thing. And I'm I'm betting it's going to be that, but I haven't heard any rumors of what it's going to be. Um, I did want to talk really briefly about you mentioned the difference between Disney and Universal ride replacement it's it, it's funny you know you go to Disneyland and all the, almost all the classic rides are still there but you go to Universal, Universal Florida and i think only one of the opening day rides remain and uh do you think this is just i i know you go into this in, in your article but do you think this is just uh a difference in philosophy or do you think it's because you know Universal goes for these like 3D screen kind of ride experiences and that those don't hold up as much as like animatronic dark rides. Um, I think it's really just an idea of how the companies view themselves. I think Disney has always been a company that's always looking backward to the question of what would Walt do is something you hear Imagineers who never met the man ask. And, that, and you always hear stories of theme park um, engineers and designers like pick, picking the brains of the guys who were there and being very, very concerned about upholding this very specific legacy. Whereas Universal is a much younger theme park company and they've always been built on what's hot, what's new, what's fresh, how you blow people away. And they've always also catered to a slightly older crowd and in, in an older crowd you can want exciting, visceral things. So I think it's just a fundamental philosophy thing. Uh, I just want to relay one fun fact that has nothing to do with the Florida attraction, but the Hollywood attraction for many years. Uh, the woman who played Sarah Connor is this actress named Danielle Rain, who starred in Dan Trachtenberg's short film Portal No Escape. Uh, so if you've ever seen that short film, she played Sarah Connor in the Hollywood version of the attraction. But let's move on to other news. Let's move on to television news. There's a lot of movies being adapted for the small screen Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so one of them is uh, a project from Netflix and Ryan Murphy, the producer of American Crime Story and all of these shows that you've seen on FX, American Horror Story, all these things. Uh, he is working on, a, and this is not a joke, he's working on a project called Ratchet, which is a Nurse Ratchet origin story, the character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
Uh, Deadline says that Ratchet is an origin story beginning in 1947, which will follow Ratchet's journey and evolution from nurse to full-fledged monster. The series will track her murderous progression through the mental health care system. Sarah Paulson, who is a frequent collaborator of Ryan Murphy's, is going to be playing the young nurse Ratchet. Uh, guys, I'm... Why? Why are we doing these origin stories of these characters? Uh, Jacob, I, I know you have some thoughts on this. I have thoughts on this. I, I have mixed feelings in Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy loves pop culture. I'm not so sure he always understands it. Like, I know he loves horror <laughs> movies, but American Horror Story, from what I've seen, I've only seen a handful of episodes, is a guy who clearly likes horror, but, feel, but feels the need to uh, subvert it in ways that he thinks have been subverted before when they have. <laughs> I feel like he's a big fan which is great sometimes. That's, sometimes, sometimes what, that's what a producer needs to be, is a big fan to support the right people. And he's obviously a fan of Nurse Ratchet and One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest because it's a great movie and a great character. But do we really need to see eight, at least 18 episodes of, a, of the origin story for a character who is more of a metaphor for an uncaring healthcare system than she is a full-fledged character? Right. It's, it, it's just... It, it is Ryan Murphy, masturbatory pop culture nonsense and i like that sometimes but here it feels like a little too much yeah and this isn't something that he just like sort of uh came up with like from the seat of his pants he spent a year working on like uh acquiring the rights to this character from um the saul zanitz estate and producer michael douglas who produced the original uh movie in the 60s so he's been working and thinking about this for a long time and (laughs) it's just one of those things where it just completely demystifies the character and i don't know that there's enough there to really sink your teeth into to enhance one flew over the cuckoo's nest in any way or to make any sort of relevant statement about society because that's another thing that murphy loves to do right it's like He's all about relevant, relevant stuff and like, um, yeah, what's going on in pop culture. And this just seems like a weird environment for him to uh, choose to try to say something about America in 2017. You, you know, I think your instincts are correct, but I feel like I would have said the same thing about Fargo before when that was first announced. I would, you know, what is the point of doing a Fargo television series? Now it's, you know, one of my favorite shows that is on television you know, today. I mean, yeah, I totally agree about Fargo. And I actually had that same thought when it did come out, but it's a separate thing from the movie. And like, it doesn't really, I mean, there's like a couple tiny really pieces of connective tissue, but it's more of like a spiritual side project. And this seems like it's a direct origin story of a character that we've actually seen before in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It seems like, yeah, just a a weird project to me. And my response to that is I, I love Fargo as well. When that came out, I was like, who is this Noah Hawley guy? What does he have to make him to make us think he should be taking on Fargo? Like, oh, Noah Hawley is this. We're discovering Noah Hawley. He's great. We, we find out who he is. And it's exciting and amazing. Whereas I know who Ryan Murphy is. Yeah, I know him. True. I know him very well. <laughs> well, another TV show that's uh, sort of in the works is um, L.A. Confidential. Uh, CBS is developing a new TV version of James Elroy's 1990 noir mystery novel. And automatically, just from the fact of it being on CBS, I'm I'm hesitant about it because LA Confidential is not one of those things that you want to see its rough edges get sanded down. And by definition, that's what you have to do for broadcast television, right? So, uh, yeah, this is a sort of a strange thing. It is coming from the one of the producers of the 1997 movie, which is obviously terrific. Uh, so maybe there's going to be some sort of 
semblance of um, you know some quality carryover from those two projects there. Uh, but it's probably worth noting that the uh, I think that same producer actually tried to get LA Confidential into a TV version in the early 2000s uh, with Kiefer Sutherland as the star playing the character that was played by Kevin Spacey in the movie. And I in the article on SlashFilm.com, you can watch I embedded the pilot of that show, which never that pilot aired. And then I think the show was just sort of canceled or never really picked up to a series after that. Um, but that's sort of a weird curiosity piece that you can check out. Um, what do you guys think about an LA confidential TV show? I agree that LA confidential could make a great TV series, but CBS is notorious for, you know, episodic mystery of the week case of the week, um, dumbing things down. And, uh, I mean, if this show was announced for HBO, AMC, Netflix, I'd be all in, but CBS, you say CBS with anything. <laughs> you say, I know. You say CBS if you're like, they're making the Avengers, they're making a Star Wars television show. It's going to be on CBS. Immediately, my interest is lost. Yeah. <laughs> the original movie is, it was my first favorite movie back in the day. Like When I first watched that movie, it was literally the first was the moment where I realized, oh, this is my favorite movie for the first time in my life. So I have a big, strong attachment to LA Confidential. And then I even I even read James Alroy's uh, novel, which is an incredible book. And that movie only adapts maybe a quarter of that book. It is so dense. It is so open to somebody saying, here's how I can stretch this out to four years and make it a long, labyrinth mystery, labyrinthine mystery. But CBS, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> also in the news, The Purge, The Island, which I think is Purge 4? The fourth and the, it is the Purge the, Four. Uh, you wrote up the article for SlashFilm.com. This is going to tell the story of the first Purge night. Finally, yeah, <laughs> we've all been waiting. Yeah. Actually, uh, I have been waiting. As I write, I'm a big fan of the Purge movies, and I'll, uh, maybe I'll touch on that in a second. But the, the deal with the Purge, the Island, is that uh, James DeMonaco, who wrote and directed the first three films, is writing this one. And he's passing the torch to Gerard McMurray to direct this one. And, and, back and, and we probably should say, even though there's been four films, wh- what is The Purge? Oh, yes. Uh, the Purge is, is a horror franchise. It takes place in a uh, near-future dystopia where the government, led by the new founding fathers, institute one night a year where all crime is legalized. So people go out in the streets and they kill each other or they hide in their homes. And even though the first movie is a pretty boilerplate home invasion movie with this sort of very vague sci-fi twist, the sequels really double down on the gonzo politics. Um, uh, a friend of mine, a writer for uh, Birth Movies Death, um, Jacob Knight, he dubbed this woke exploitation because they're super grimy, bloody horror movies with like the most crazy progressive liberal politics. <laughs> like there was like people are getting chainsawed and murdered, and then the movie will pause to say, you know, class warfare is really wrong. We should find ways to. To um, destroy the patriarchy, and they're wild. <laughs> if you haven't seen them, we've written them off. You should, you should check them out. But anyway, um, the Purge Island will take place with the new founding fathers years before the first movie. Saying, "How do we get people on board with a night where everybody kills each other?" Which, as is revealed in the sequels, is their way of weeding out the lower classes and pretty much legalizing class warfare, so uh, white upper class families thrive and poor people of color die it's a really dark series man um but basically <laughs> the gist of the purge of the island is that poor people in staten island are paid to stay behind in that borough and kill each other for a night while the rich people run off to brooklyn 
So pretty much it's about the poor being paid by the government to say, we're going to try you guys killing each other for a night and seeing how that works out. Hmm. And it, like I said, this movie is, these movies are never subtle, but I'm, I'm all for, man, I'm all for horror movies that have distinct points of view. And even in a prequel, The Purge is saying, we're going we're gonna to go after very topical material with the force of a chainsaw or a hammer or pick your weapon of choice. <laughs> Well, that actually has me interested. I have not watched any of the Purge movies. Uh, maybe this will get me to actually go back and, and rewatch that series. But uh, moving on, a story that hit after we published the podcast yesterday, uh, Suicide Squad 2, they announced a new director for the series. Ben, you wrote it up for the site. What do we know? Yes, Gavin O'Connor, the guy who directed The Accountant, Miracle, and Pride and Glory, is going to be directing Suicide Squad 2. Uh, Warner Brothers have been looking at Mel Gibson at one point to direct, and then uh, Juan Colette Seurat, the director of The Shallows, was very close to signing on before he eventually jumped ship and went over to Disney to direct uh, Jungle Cruise with Dwayne Johnson. So that left Warner Brothers without a director again. Um, Suicide Squad 2 has been one of their big priorities since the first movie did uh, so well theatrically if not not very well creatively but uh it made a lot of money for them so they've been looking to get the gang back together and get that going um gavin o'connor i think is an interesting choice if you have not seen his 2011 movie warrior it is underseen but super super great um it is why his name was on all of these director short lists for a few years after that movie came out uh, it stars Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton and Nick Nolte. It's really, really good. Please go see it. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm just glad that they're giving uh, Gavin O'Connor enough time to work on this because I think um, Suicide Squad 2 is supposed to film sometime in 2018. So he at least has a few months to write the script, which is more than David Ayer had for the first movie because I think the, the word was that he wrote that script in six weeks and all of the production troubles that that film had, it felt like he wrote that movie in six weeks and then it was cut to bits in the editing room. So hopefully this is enough time, enough lead time for O'Connor to have enough, you know, uh, give himself a fighting chance to make a good movie. Um, I don't uh, mind the idea of Suicide Squad. I would just like to see a coherent story being told with these characters in it. Uh, and that's not what we got the first time around. But um, yeah, I, I like him as a director. I haven't really seen him do much lately. Uh, he directed Jane Got a Gun, that troubled Western with Natalie Portman. Um, and I never ended up seeing that because that movie basically just sort of got dumped in theaters quietly and nobody really made a peep out of that one. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if this is what uh, sort of launches Gavin O'Connor back up uh, into the stratosphere. He, he, he also directed The Accountant, which uh, I like despite being like one of the strangest, most absurd premises ever, which is having, you know, this accountant with like almost super... Uh, <laughs> math abilities and yeah. uh, I don't know that he's almost like a superhero and starring Ben Affleck. Uh, they're, they're, they're actually making a sequel to that. Uh, Gavin also, I think is developing a green Hornet film, but uh, I don't know. It it, it it seems like his style is kind of the gritty kind of uh, handheld realistic uh, mm -hmm. kind of close to David Ayer. I, I think 
Um, yeah, and that you could see that in his cop movie, Pride and Glory. It's sort of a, yeah, like a, a down and dirty sort of movie. Um, and I think that's a good fit with these characters. Uh, and he also seems like one of those guys that has like a little bit of style, but he is probably going to be easily malleable um, in a producer driven sort of DCEU kind of thing. Like if, if Warner Brothers needs him to change things or, or sort of uh, move things around, I feel like he's not going to be a guy who can sort of pull rank and try to be like, don't you know who I am? I'm Gavin O'Connor, you know, like he's just going <laughs> to yeah. he's going to go along with whatever they want. No, I, I, and, and I was just going to oh, say, I just think it's interesting that they, they, they're going with a gritty guy instead of, um, you know, it seemed like audiences responded to the uh, the marketing for Suicide Squad one, which was kind of like super stylistic and music video, you know, just the soundtrack was, you know, it, it was just that kind of thing. And it seems like they're going more with the style that David Ayer kind of wanted to go for <laughs> with his film, which is uh, at, at least in their choice of Gavin O'Connor. Uh, Jacob, you were going to say? Yeah, I think that Gavin O'Connor, well, he does maybe has that sort of grim, stripped down style we could associate with David Ayer. He's also less grotesque. David Ayer is obsessed with with grotesqueries, with people being awful, with things looking awful, with cruelty. Whereas Gavin O'Connor tends to be more interested in, in redemption and meat and potato stories of men and women going on quests and finding themselves. And so even though maybe they have some similar movies, I feel like he's more fit to make a superhero movie than David Ayer is. Yeah. And he's also sure. made some more hopeful movies. He, he made Miracle, guys. I, I think we yeah. forget that. But he made Miracle. <laughs> um, that does it for the news. You can find more of Jacob's work on SlashFilm.com and Twitter at Jacob S. Hall. You can find Ben at Ben Pierce on Twitter and also, of course, SlashFilm.com. And now for our feature presentation, I have with me Brad Omen. How's it going, Brad? Not too bad. How about you? It's going well. Almost a year ago, you went to Australia to visit the set of Thor Ragnarok. And finally, the embargo has broken. You get you get to actually write about it on the site. Everybody can go to SlashFilm.com and read uh, a bunch of different articles that you you have written about the experience. But uh, you're here on the podcast today to tell us a little bit about it. So uh, how was it? Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, going to Australia is crazy in itself because it's like a 14 hour flight. And so it's it's kind of cool because you really do feel like you're traveling to another world in a way. Um, and so since you're going to, you know, a, the set of Thor Ragnarok, that's, that's really what you're doing. And you, you get to be in multiple fantastical places. So, you know, we, uh, where, where were they shooting this film? Because I've, I've gone to a lot of Marvel set visits, but usually they're shooting like on the Pinewood lot or, you know, does Australia have a, a big studio? Yeah, they do. They have, they have a studio that's down there that actually is also called Pinewood, I believe. Um, yeah, they have the, they, they they have cornered the market on movie yeah. studios worldwide. Yeah, fun, funnily enough, it's right next to an amusement park, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so they have they have their own studio there. Like that's actually where Aquaman was going to shoot um, this this year, and so that's they have their their, their own studio equipped to handle these blockbuster movies. And Thor Ragnarok had you know taken over a lot of the the area there, and so they had the set for Asgard. That was that was still up, uh, and they also had sets for Sakar, which is the new planet that Thor ends up on, where he is forced to fight Gladiator Hulk. Um, and then the scene in, that we got to see filmed the most takes place on this stone arch bridge on Asgard. 
Uh, I won't get into what it entails because we were told that this scene is actually like extremely climactic stuff, as in stuff that happens in the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. Um, so there's a lot of spoilers there and there's actually some things that we were told that not to even talk about that we saw, um, even before the set visit began, we were told by the unit publicist that Kevin Feige was actually kind of nervous with the stuff that we were going to see being shot that day because of how spoilery it was. Uh, they didn't even give us, uh, headphones to listen to the dialogue that was being said. And we were far enough away that we couldn't hear what was being said, despite the fact that we could actually see them shooting on set. Um, but we, you know, we, we did, uh, did you, you know, get, did you get a tour of the story room? Cause it usually on a Marvel set visit, they bring you to this thing that they, they call the boardroom sometimes. And it's basically where they have meetings on set and it's filled wall to wall with concept art. And I, I'm assuming when press is on set, they have, uh, strategically, um, removed some of the concept art to, to not spoil certain uh twists and turns but uh it, it's it's usually an amazing and sometimes models too did, did you get to go to the boardroom yeah we did that that was actually where some of the most interesting details came from um i'm not sure how careful they were with getting rid of certain spoilery details because there were some things that were up on the wall that raised some interesting questions um, and provided some details that could be considered spoilery. I, I, the interesting thing, though, is like when you're dealing with concept art, sometimes the concept art pieces aren't necessarily indicative of stuff that you'll actually see in the movie. It's just stuff yeah. that either creates a vibe for the movie or uh, scenes that they thought might happen but aren't anymore. Um, but, yeah, so we, we got a tour of the, the production offices where they had concept art all over the place. And what was also cool is that not only was their their concept art, but – there were pages of comic books all over the place, mostly Jack Kirby uh, design pages. So you, they were really pulling from Kirby's artistic influence to design the world of this particular Thor movie, especially when it comes to the, the design of Sakaar, which, as we've seen in the trailers, is super vibrant and colorful. And just there's so much detail, you know, in, in every, you know, nook and cranny of, of the set and just pulled straight from from the pages of Jack Kirby's Thor comics. And when you were walking around the set, the actual sets, did you get a sense of that? Like, how big were these sets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, that's the coolest thing about the the sets is you know, um, you know, some of it is obviously they'll they'll do digital extension on these sets, but you know, the Asgard set, it's it's like walking in the middle of a town square, basically. Like you you really feel like you're in Asgard. They actually had a a small like river that they had built into the set where they had these like uh, little boats that would come through and people like would be getting off them to, you know, enter the town square area. It's supposed to be, it's the, uh, you see part of the, the set that we were on in the sequence when uh, Hela is in Asgard and facing off against all the Asgardian warriors who are ready to, to take her on. Um, and it's the same with Sakaar. And the cool thing about Sakaar too is Sakaar kind of had like multiple levels to it. There was a couple stories. They had like a long, stairway leading up to a certain part of it and then another part of it were these like kind of back alley city areas hmm. um and then like the uh the area that leads into the gladiator arena so uh yeah the the both of those sets were just see I, i've noticed that recently on a lot of set visits what set designers are doing are creating a lot of those nooks and crannies so that they can uh make the most use out of like one 
build so they can yeah, film exactly. from like one one corner and it could look like one part of the city it, you know it it just uh they don't have to build tons of multiple sets it's it it it's more uh budget friendly yeah exactly they just they they move you know different pieces around so that it looks a little bit different and that depending on the camera angle you're not seeing certain parts of the set that you would have already seen in other uh, sequences that take place in the exact same spot. So they're, yeah, they're very efficient when it comes to building sets that they can function for multiple uses. Okay, before we get into some of the details that you learned, which I know some people might want to turn this off uh, because they don't want to know anything, but I, I, I assure you that Marvel's probably not going to let you talk spoilers. Uh, um, the uh, But before we get to that... Uh, I just want to know what was your general impression t- t- talking to? Did you talk to Taika Waititi and uh, I'm sure Chris Hem- uh, Chris Hemsworth? We did, yeah. Uh, well, um, well, the coolest thing about that visit, and this is something that doesn't normally happen, is the day before we were on set, we actually went out to dinner with Taika Waititi and uh, producer Brad Winderbaum, um, and we were at dinner for a few hours, and we were just talking to Taika, you know, not just about the movie, but just, you know, about things in general. Because I was most fascinated to talk to him just because he has a a long career in stand-up and improv. And so that was just like the comedy nerd in me just loved sitting and talking to him. Hmm. So that that was cool in itself. But then, but yeah, obviously we interviewed Taika on set in between. The the worst thing about set visits is usually the director is the most busy. Because when an actor is not acting, he's like, you know, in his trailer you know, getting ready for the, but director is always busy. So yeah, on a exactly. set, you're, you're lucky if you even get five minutes with the director. So you were lucky to get a few hours. Yeah. We, we, so we had to get a talk with him at dinner and then we got him for about 15 minutes, uh, on, on the record for the discussion on set. We talked to Chris Hemsworth for an extended period of time too. I want to say 20 some minutes, Tessa Thompson, Tom Hilston, um, and Kate Blanchett as well. Oh, we're not allowed to run the Kate Blanchett interview just yet they're holding that back uh, i'm not i'm not entirely sure what the reasoning is behind it but we'll run that as soon as we're allowed to i, I think uh-huh. i'm trying to keep her character a bit of a mystery even though i think we've kind of figured it out but um w- what are your general impressions from all those interviews and what you saw yeah being on this set it was immediately clear that this was a thor movie that was completely different from what had come before in the franchise it has a unique style all its own. Not only is it more cosmic along the lines of Guardians of the Galaxy, but it's drawing from uh, different comic books that give it a, a much more refreshing feel. You know, like, like I said, the Jack Kirby aesthetic is prominent throughout the entire movie, and it gives this whole new, bright, colorful, cosmic adventure vibe to it. And along, also along with that, there's a big... Um, they really up the ante as far as the comedy is concerned, not to the point that it's like this, you know, slapstick nonsense kind of thing, but it's, it's all very natural. Like they've, they've really built in the idea that Thor has, you know, kind of evolved since learning about earth and meeting the Avengers. And he's got kind of this attitude about him where he's got some of earth's sarcasm, uh, you know, and he brings that back to, you know, the, the cosmos as he's tra- traversing around the galaxy, tra- you know, on this self-imposed mission to figure out how he can, uh, you know, stop the doom that he saw predicted in that vision from Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. So it's just and, and everything we've seen from the trailer so far is like it's exactly how I felt on the movie. It's just it's a completely different Thor movie. And I feel like not only will it be 
the best in this franchise, but it has the possibility of being one of the most unique and refreshing movies in, in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, so now's the time that if you don't want to know any extra details, uh, you can turn off the podcast uh, because we're going to talk to Brad about uh, some of the, the most interesting things that you've learned, that you learned on set. What, so what were some of the interesting things that we learned on set of Thor Ragnarok? Uh, there's definitely some interesting things about Valkyrie, who's the new character being played by Tessa Thompson. Uh, we've gotten some hints of what her role in the overall story and sort of history of Asgard in the movie. Uh, and basically, she, uh, Tessa Thompson described her as this expatriate who has been banished from Asgard. She wouldn't necessarily get into spe- specifics why, but since the sequence that we've seen in the trailers involving uh Valkyrie riding on a Pegasus with an army of other female warriors behind her uh, facing Hela. Uh, that's a flashback sequence. And so that indicates to us that at some point, Valkyrie and the rest of those warriors were tasked with defeating Hela, stopping her from doing something. But it seems like they failed since in that in shots from that same sequence, we've seen Valkyrie and all those warriors falling out of the sky with their, their horses surrounding them. So something something happened where she failed Asgard she failed Odin uh and since her and this team are kind of considered Odin's like SEAL Team 6 you know that's a big slight against them as as warriors and so she's out on her own she's uh, working as a bounty hunter on Sakaar which is how she gets caught up with Thor because she brings in these gladiator contenders for the Grandmaster to use in his uh big fights where we know Hulk has become this grand champion and what's kind of cool about the dynamic between Valkyrie and Thor is that Thor is actually kind of a fanboy of Valkyrie. He's very <laughs> familiar familiar with uh, what she used to do and what you know all the, these female warriors uh, were involved with for for Odin and for Asgard. So she's kind of like a hero to him in a way. So their dynamic isn't just this you know plain sort of love interest thing where that you know he thinks that she's attractive and she's tough and so oh man I gotta you know get with that. Uh, but there's yeah, there's, there's definitely a dynamic where she's her own character. She stands on her own just fine, and, and uh, Thor admires her in a way. Um, that doesn't mean that there, there isn't a relationship that won't blossom there, uh, mostly because we also found out that apparently they have some quote-unquote respectable fun with how the relationship between Thor and uh, Natalie Portman's character, Jane Foster, may have come to a mutual end. So that will be a loose end that is tied up since mm. it sounds like Natalie Portman probably isn't coming back to the Marvel movies anytime soon. And what, what did you find out about the Hulk? How did, how did he arrive on Sakaar? Do we know? So you, you might remember a while back, there were rumors that there was going to be a solo planet Hulk movie and that Hulk, uh, after he flies the Quinjet off in event at the end of Avengers age of Ultron, he was somehow going to end up uh, in space and that would kick off the entire planet Hulk story. That's actually kind of true, except we're not getting a solo Planet Hulk movie. We're just getting elements of Planet Hulk combined into this new Thor sequel. And so it it sounds like uh, what happened is that the Quinjet ended up in space and the Quinjet got sucked into one of the many wormholes that leads to Sakaar because Sakaar is this basically trash heap of a planet where all these wormholes from around the galaxy throw junk around. Like it's the the entire planet is almost like composed of you know space garbage and so the quinjet got sucked into this wormhole hulk ended up there and now 
as we learned at Comic-Con, he's been Hulk for two years on Sakaar, and he's become this huge gladiator champion. The Grandmaster and uh, nobody else on Sakaar knows that Hulk has an alter ego that is Bruce Banner because he's just been, you know, the big guy this entire time. That That is funny. Um, what do we know about the connections between Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, this movie? Because obviously you share some lineage with uh, Jeff Goldblum's character. Yeah, so the the Grandmaster has been confirmed elsewhere to be not only the brother of the Collector, but he's also a Celestial, just like Star-Lord's father, uh, Ego, played by Kurt Russell in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So the Grandmaster, there was a, an interesting piece of concept art that we saw in the production offices that showed the Grandmaster meeting with a character from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and that character is the Broker, which is the kind of... Uh, prickly looking fella that star lord was trying to sell the orb to in the first guardians of the galaxy after he had, had uh, illegally obtained it um it's the same guy who was scared as soon as he mentioned that ronin was the one uh who was trying to get the orb while he was also in pursuit of it um they were meeting kind of in this very colorful psychedelic kind of jungle um setting and i there was no really clear indication as to why they were meeting but i'm but taking that into account with another little tidbit that i noticed in the production office was there was a prop list that we saw and one of the props listed on that uh list was something called a zandarian cube Hmm. um now we know that there are there's is one or two infinity stones left to be uncovered i forget but there's there's at least one left um, and I, it seems like Thor Ragnarok is probably the most obvious choice where we would see one of those infinity stones pop up. And considering we're dealing with the grandmaster who is the brother of the collector, um, it would stand to reason that perhaps he is somebody who is also trying to get his hands on the infinity stones, either, whether it's for, to give, to give to the collector, because as we saw in uh, a credit scene for Thor, the dark world, uh, he was pretty happy to have received the Infinity Stone called the Ether uh, from Lady Sif, uh, since they didn't want to keep it with the Tesseract in Odin's vault on Asgard. So maybe the Grandmaster is trying to help his brother, the Collector, collect the Infinity Stones. Uh, whether or not they want them for themselves, or they're trying to give them the Thanos, we are not really sure. But I, I'm I'm thinking that this Zandarian cube might be something that obtains an Infinity Stone, and that maybe the Grandmaster was is trying to get his hands on it somehow. That's all speculation on my part, but I did think it was interesting that he was meeting with the character from Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's not the only Guardians of the Galaxy link uh, we noticed either. There was also a piece of concept art on the wall that showed the Milano, which is Star Lord ship. Um, it wasn't clear what was happening in the scene because it was just a shot of the ship. Uh, in space but i'm wondering if maybe which by the way they don't have anymore the guardians of the galaxy do you know are no longer in position of the Moano at the end of guardians of the galaxy volume two but we know that they have it back in avengers infinity war because that's the ship that thor lands on the windshield of right in the footage that we saw at d23 and comic-con i do i i believe that is incorrect i believe that we see them in the ship that they um the new ship that they got from the Ravagers. Interesting. Yes. Um, well, so my my prediction was that maybe that we might see that scene uh, 
play out in Thor Ragnarok where maybe Thor meets them at the very end or in a credit scene. But if the Milano is in fact destroyed and the Guardians are not in possession of it anymore, then I don't. maybe there's some overlap with Thor Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 where... Like, I'm not sure it, because also you got to consider Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two took place a few months after the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which takes place a few years ago, and I think this is closer to the Infinity War timeline. So I, I guess the big well, question is who who is in possession of the Milano? That's true. Well, the, uh, well, because this movie there is there has some overlap with Captain America Civil War since this is the reason Thor and Hulk are gone during this time. So it, so. Even if Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two still takes place a few years ago, that would still work out since Captain America: Civil War technically happened a couple years ago, right? I don't know. The Marvel timeline is kind of confusing when it comes to that kind of stuff, so it, it's hard to tell. But uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting that 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 ship was there uh, in the concept art room. Well, you you have a ton of information here. You have interviews. Everything is on SlashFilm.com. I, I recommend if you are excited for Thor Ragnarok, go to SlashFilm.com, read Brad's coverage. Uh, you should see it in the featured sidebar. I'll also link it in the show notes. Uh, Brad, where can we find more of your work online? I'm always at SlashFilm.com writing about the movies and the TV and the entertainment fun. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson. And, of course, you can listen to my podcast. Go Flix Yourself on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And I want to thank you for listening to Slash Film Daily. Obviously, we're published weekdays, Monday through Friday. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all the popular podcast apps. Just search Slash Film Daily. And you should be able to find us. If you have any questions for the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. And please give us a review on iTunes or Google Play. That helps us out a lot, um, especially if you like the show. Uh, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow.